It's Ridge Racer. It's Ridge Racer. It's Ridge Racer. It's Ridge Racer. Ridge Racer. You're listening to Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. All right, welcome to Twitch Asylum Episode 7. Hey, and back on Episode 6, we got a lot of downloads, didn't we? Yeah, we actually got the uh, largest number of downloads ever for our podcast, and that that was after we took a couple months off, so I've been thinking about it. I think maybe we should take maybe a year off this time, (laughs) and I think we'll get the uh, largest number of downloads in history. But Somehow I don't think that's going to work. No, maybe not. One thing that was kind of cool about um, post the last podcast is a lot of the Apple sites after we did the Apple retro respect section yeah. linked to us. Yeah, so we got cool. a lot of people from apple2history.org and a2central.com uh, visit our site and coming into the forum. So that was really cool. And I just want to thank them for doing that because that's. Uh, yeah, that's great. And I've seen a lot more posts on our forums lately at twitchasylum.com. Yeah, in fact, um, there's been a lot of activity in the forum. So thanks to all the listeners for getting in there. And, uh, you know, Woody even posted That's two right. things today which Woody is a first so uh uh you know in the future hopefully so we're gonna Woody... have a scavenger hunt to find his posts <laughs> yeah i'll hide them i'll hide them all over <laughs> i also spent a little bit of time uh between the last podcast messing with the forms and added some new functionality so one thing you can do now is you know a lot of people were using that i think it's mygamercard.net yeah so you don't their... have to do that anymore yeah, you don't have to do that anymore so if you go into your profile you can basically set your xbox live gamer tag and then when you go to the forums, it automatically shows up. And you can even have another image in addition to your gamer tag now. What's kind of cool about the gamer tag in the forums is you can click on your name or any of your recently played games. It'll link directly to Xbox.com. So it's much more interactive than it was before. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I also gave like the ability to see like the preview, the descriptions of the last post, and that kind of stuff at the top level. So just a little bit of PHP hacking on the side. <laughs> That's what I was doing when I wasn't working on Outbreaks. Um, that I promised I'd do last time, but that will come eventually. <laughs> now we have a special offer for people who might want to be on the show, right, Chris? We do. What, yeah, I, don't, you... I wouldn't really call it an offer. It's more like uh, we want. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's more like if you're interested in being a guest on the show, let us know. Yeah, exactly. I'll, the probably the best way to do that is go into the forums, register, and send myself uh, razored. Uh, razored with a zero, a uh, a private message and and kind of tell us what you want to talk about. And we're thinking probably we'll start off with putting people like in the what we're playing now segment. Right. So you wouldn't have to be some sort of you know working in the industry person or something. It's anybody can just if you have something interesting to say about what you're playing, an opinion about video games, that's fine. Right. So it'd be great to hear from our listeners on the show. I just want to make it much more interactive, and that's what's been really cool about the forums and the new posts. Is I really feel like. You know, that's the best way for us to kind of, you know, get in touch with our audience and to see that people are listening. Because when you put a podcast out into ether like we do, you really don't know. Like, you know, you can see a hit count, but it's really cool when people come to the forums and say hi. Um, so what are we doing this time, Tom? Well, we have a topic this time that we're going to be discussing, and it's the death of comedy games. The death of comedy games? Because comedy games used to be a pretty big segment. Yeah, exactly. And I can't 
think of very many now at all. No, there's really none. But so we're going to kind of go through why we think that happened, kind of reminisce about the old comedy games that we enjoyed. And in the retro section, we're going to talk a little bit about a company called Sierra Online that I spent a lot of time playing their games in my childhood. So uh, going through those games and uh, talking about those, and uh, that's about it. So ready to get on with the show? Yeah, let's go. Here we go. It's time for the discussion. Again, it's not a rant. It's a discussion. Just a discussion. <laughs> so we're talking this time about the death of comedy games. Uh, and I guess this topic kind of comes up because a lot of the research I did this time, or we did, was on Sierra Online. And when I started looking at Sierra Online, I was looking at these games. I'm like, man, all these games I used to play when I was a kid were like comedy-based. And some of the games that I really enjoyed playing were you know, the adventure games from Sierra, like Leisure Suit Larry, yeah. Space Quest... Zork, you know, even Zork had a lot of Zork comedy had a lot it. of funny lines and funny comebacks to what you would yeah. type in. And I, well, and with Sierra Online, even the games that weren't focused on comedy had a lot of comedy. The King's Quest series weren't as directly comedic as Space Quest. Exactly. But they had a lot of humor in them. Yeah. And, and the Hitchhiker's Guide game was based on a comedy book, and it was really hilarious. It wasn't exactly like the book, but it had its own, you know, funny lines and funny things that would happen. And a lot of those games back then were... Very much based on comedy, and part of it was, I think, they had to do something to make up for the fact that there weren't graphics, or there were graphics, but they weren't very detailed. And one of the ways that you could compensate for that is by having a really interesting plot, or having a really funny plot, or funny lines. Right, right? yeah. So I started to think, you know, about comedy games, you know, looking at the Sierra stuff, and like, the games I play today, there's like no comedy. Or so there might be a comedy moment here and there, but the whole, the game you wouldn't call a comedy. Yeah, and I figured, yeah. you know... Everything's on the internet, so I started searching the internet. You know, have anybody else said this? I mean, I'm sure I'm not the first person to come to this conclusion. And I found a couple people, have a couple quotes from people in their blogs, and uh, and one was even on MSN. This guy named uh, Stephen Trillo, he he has several quotes related to the fact that he doesn't see comedy in games today, and he has he, his reasons why are kind of interesting. He says it's like because of the way gameplay is today, it's really difficult to integrate comedy. You know, it's so fast action, high paced. It's not, it doesn't really lend itself to putting comedy in the game. Yeah. Uh, he also says that, you know, with improving technology, you know, all of the story elements are being pushed aside because they're, they're working on advanced physics, immersive action, you know, advanced graphics. And again, they're not really focusing on the storyline. Yeah. So another guy, uh, Robert Workman, had a, a great quote, uh, and I think this is actually a famous line: uh, "Dying is easy, comedy is hard." So it sounds like along the same lines, you know, that uh, that we're basically just doing these shooters that really don't have a storyline, so it's hard to integrate comedy elements in there. 
Do you think it's also budget? Like, if you have a certain amount of budget and you spend it all on art and graphics, yeah. you're not going to have as much left over for, you know, writing and, and things like that. I don't know if it really works like that, but it seems like it might. It seems like, you know, you've got to allocate your resources somewhere. And if they're all going into a 3D engine or they're all going into, you know, texture maps or something. And since those older games didn't have those elements, you know, th- those resources could have been used for, you know, writing funny lines or coming up with funny characters. Right. Right. I, I think a lot of it the death of comedy goes hand in hand just with uh, the decline of the prominence of plot in the games. I mean, it's just, like I said, the, the focus has become on the action um, and the graphics and all that, and I think there's just less focus on plot, and so definitely if there's less focus on plot, there's also less focus on even more esoteric uh, Things like the comedy, com- putting comedy in a plot. Yeah, I mean, if you and look it at takes the, effort. If you look at the categories of games... All the sports games, the sports games aren't going to have comedy, right? They're, you're just playing basketball or football or whatever. All the driving games are probably not going to have comedy. There's whole categories of games that are probably never going to have comedy. And back when adventure games were king, when that was what people played, that was a genre that lent itself more to having funny stuff happen, right? right. I, I, that's what I think it is partly, too. It's just the, the shift in genre away from adventure and towards like the first-person shooter, the driving game, the sports simulation, stuff like that. Well, yeah, but even with sports games, you know, there's ways they could put comedy in there. I, I, at least I think, you know, a basketball game. Um, integrate something with, you know, have the Harlem Globetrotters bound out on the court one time, you know, during the tournament or something. You know, just humorous for the player. It doesn't have well, to be no, all the see, time. Or... When they had the Burger King guy come out in the boxing game, then Chris didn't like that, right? <laughs> not, you know, you could have looked at comedy, that. comedy, as... that's advertising. Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. I mean, and, okay. and it wouldn't even have to be prominent. It could be like an Easter egg or something. Um, but it's just, the, but the point is, to do that, you have to come up with people who can write it, and then you have to make the effort and put money into it. And I think publishers these days, just probably don't see any any benefit to it. They probably just don't see any sales coming from it. Well, also, you can show a potential customer a screenshot and you can go look at these amazing graphics. It's harder to show them that the game's going to be really right. funny once you play it. You right. know? So I think it's right. partly a marketing yeah. thing, too. So Robert Workman has something that, uh, that he says is kind of interesting. He says that he thinks that uh, today... Uh, game uh, developers are dumbing down games, so they're not uh, giving gamers uh, credit for the intelligence that they have, and so they're like <laughs> creating these games that are like you know not for intelligent people versus the games way back. You know, so just shooters, kind of brainless, is what he's saying. Okay, versus yeah. the older adventure games, which were much more intellectually based. Do you agree with that? I think some of the older games, the adventure games, were more intellectually based, where you were trying to figure out some complicated puzzle, where you had to take all these pieces of information that you had from different parts of the game and put them all together and come up with some sort of creative solution, which is a lot of a, a lot different experience than you know shooting at something. Or it's not that the games today are easy, though. I mean, they're just hard in a different way. They're they're more about hand-eye coordination and figuring out you know exactly some place to shoot someone from or right but see the thing is i guess where i think that maybe he's right in a sense is when Mm -hmm. i was playing these adventure games way back when i would like get stuck and i'd go to school and i'd go to work and i'd think about that puzzle oh yeah all day long i'd be like you know i gotta get past this thing is there something i'm doing wrong maybe i forgot something maybe there's something i need to do and you know what i don't really do that anymore and i would talk to my friends at school about the game right because a lot of those those kids were playing the same games. So yeah. like with Zork, I'd go, to, I'd go to school and be like, okay, you know, what about the well? What do you do with the well? Or, right. Or whatever, right? So do you do that today? Do you no, think? No, no. And why is that? I, I don't really do that. Because I think when you're playing those old adventure games, 
you sort of accepted that some of those puzzles were going to be really hard. You might have to think about them for several days. You might have to ask people for, you might like sit around, sit down with your friends and brainstorm ideas of, you know, what could the solution be? And I just don't think games work like that quite as much anymore. And also, but another thing is like now, now if you're stuck on a game, you just like Google for it and go to some site that gives you the answer, right? Too easy to get it's instant gratification. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's too easy to just find out. And back then you didn't really have that type of resources available. So at you best you could buy a hint book if they had yeah, one at the yeah. store. If there even was a yeah, hint book. Yeah. But back then you're pretty much on your own. It's like if you couldn't figure out the answer, you're just screwed. Yeah. You better think about it some more and you know try to figure out what it was. Um, and the other thing he says that's kind of interesting is that you know, way back when it was mostly textual, so yeah. you had to have somebody who could write a really good story. And right. today, because the story was the game, you were right. seeing the words on the screen. But right? today, it's not only a story, but it's voice acting. Yeah. So you might have a really good story, but the people who are in the voice acting sucks. So it's not <laughs> funny, right? Could so be, it's yeah. not going to be. Uh, so it really takes right. more than now just now. You need good writers and good actors delivering them, and because... good programmers to develop the game to make it. Yeah. you know. So well, and comedy is just hard because not only is it all that, not only do you have to have the script, but you, I always hear, I'm not, not a comedic, comedy expert, but you always hear, like, timing is crucial in comedy. Yeah. Exactly. And that's hard to do when the player, when they want to give the player interaction. I mean, like, in, you, I don't see how you do humor in, like, Quake 3 or something where <laughs> the player's running around, you know, the player controls everything. In, in games with cutscenes, you could integrate comedy in the cutscene. But back in the day, it was a lot easier because there was just a lot of things that were like scripted animations where it would let the game do the timing for you. Um, so I, I still think it's very possible. I just don't think people are putting the effort in. Right. So let's look at uh, what are some of the games that have come out recently that kind of tried to do comedy. I guess the Bard's Tale. I don't know if you the guys, new, Bard, new yeah. Bard's Tale. It's a lot different than the old one. Apparently, asked, did you play that at all? I haven't played it. I've read some reviews of it though that said it was very funny, and I do have it on my ga- uh, GameFly queue yeah. so that I'll get a chance to play it pretty soon. And then there's uh, Tim Schafer's uh, Psychonauts, which we talked about quite a bit before, and, and that is definitely funny, and I think it achieves uh, you know comedy. But again, it's I think it's a lot different than what we saw in the like the adventure, like the Sierra Online adventures way back in the day. In a game I played a lot of, uh, I, I doubt you guys, it was Stubbs the Zombie. No, I haven't Did you play that, that at no, all? No, I saw that, though, and it looked really interesting. Yeah, and I think that's one reason. I finished Stubbs the Zombie, and so, you know I don't finish that many games, but for some reason I finished that one. I think it had a lot to do with, with the comedy in it. I mean, mm-hmm. there was it had comedy all over, and it was a first-person type, shooter type game. Well, third person, actually, but you know it was an action-based game, but there was just a lot of funny parts. Like, the characters you fought against were like a barbershop quartet, <laughs> and then they're you know singing to you the whole time that they're going to kill you. It's pretty uh-huh. great. You can like rip off your hand and throw it on the ground and attach it to other people's head, and then control <laughs> them, and it kind of goes to a black and white. Had like a DDR game where you dance off against the police chief. I mean, there's a lot of comedy in that game, and the voice acting was good, and I just thought... It had a good feel. It's like the only game that's really action-oriented, besides maybe Psychonauts, in a long time that I thought was was pretty good from a comedic perspective. So mm. yeah, I, again, I think there's a lot of games that might have a funny moment here or there. Like um, what was that game? Um, Cameo on the 360. Yeah. Now I wouldn't call that a comedy game, and it wasn't something that made me crack up laughing. But there were certain moments where you would see some of the technologies that the the bad guys had, and you'd see like the giant mecha troll or whatever, and it was just funny looking, and it would make me laugh a little bit. So what do you think? Some of the reasons? I mean, we, I think we pretty much touched on some of these before, but that they aren't being produced today. You know, we've got these 
couple that we just mentioned, but besides that, why do you think they're not being produced today? I mean, I think it's just that they're not, they're afraid to take risks. And it's kind of what we've heard about before. It's why we get so many sequels, so many games that look right. just like the others. They don't want to, I mean, it's going to be a new IP probably, right? Because there's not that many comedy games. So first of all, it's going to be a new franchise. you got to have good writing, good acting like we talked about. And I just don't think companies are willing to take that risk. They'd rather build something that's a shooter that they know is going to be, you know, they're going to get some market share because yeah, they know possibly. that that works. I think also, though, that it might just be a trend that, you know, entertainment goes in terms of fads. And I read somewhere the other day that um, television networks are producing fewer and fewer situation comedies just because it's not the cool thing anymore. It's not, you know, people are going to, more towards the the forensic dramas like CSI. Yeah. They're going more towards the reality shows like American Idol. Well, that's because the reality shows are cheap. But yeah, reality shows are cheap. But I think There's it's more all dramas about than money, sitcoms. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, but money. there was a time when the sitcom was the yeah. hot genre in right. television as well, and maybe not so much anymore. I think maybe another hard thing about doing the comedy and in terms of them playing it safe is that a lot of the best comedy uh, skirts the edge of offensiveness sometimes, and it doesn't oh. have to be offensive. So you're saying they're to playing good, for rating, but I of think the game, yeah, well, trying to yeah, get the rating of you know not be a mature rated game. Yeah, so if they you know, and the safest comedy you look at is also some of the like blandest comedy. You look at like Jay Leno and and Letterman, and they're they're great at what they do, but definitely their comedy is you know kind of the the lowest yeah, minimum of a professional comedian I think because it's point. safe for the whole audience. You have a point that, you know, if you can't go with the offensive humor if you're trying to get the rating for it's for teens or whatever. Right, and back in the day they could do things like the Leisure Suit Larry, which, you know, if that was only coming out now, it'd probably be uh, banned in Walmart and things like that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> They did come out with a new Leisure Suit Larry. Now, Leisure Suit Larry, I mean, for those who haven't played it, it's it's this game where you basically try to pick up girls and... It's it's very silly though. It's I wouldn't call it real offensive. It's, no, not it's at all. Because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. It's a it's a very silly cartoonish thing, and and you really get the sense that the the main character Leisure Suit Larry is is kind of a strange goofball bozo, right. and so he doesn't. It's not like he's this horrible sexual predator or something. I mean, he's more like just a, a comedy figure. Right. But you, you and I get that out of the game. But all it takes is one. You know. Uh, one fundamentalist preacher who wants to make it an issue <laughs> doesn't even have to have played the game, and they decide to, yeah. to, to pump it up, and, and, and then it's a, it's a disaster for the publisher, you know, whether or not the game was actually offensive. So the key is they want to stay away from anything that could possibly be interpreted as offensive in a soundbite on the evening news. Right. So I guess the question is, why do we even care? You know, why does it matter that there's no comedy games? Does it matter? Well, I really enjoyed some of those games, so I'd like to laugh at, at a game and have yeah. uh, that kind of entertainment again. Because those are definitely the games that stick the most vividly in my mind from my childhood. I mean, of all the games I can remember as a kid, those all those ones from Sierra are like you know two thirds of the list of my favorite games from my childhood. Right. Um, there are a few that weren't comedy, but all those I think are classics, and so I'd like to see more of those classics. You know, the reason I think, I mean, I, I totally agree with that because obviously I love those games as well. But the other thing I think about is, you know, everybody's talking about the Wii. And they're like, uh, you know, the Wii is going to get this whole new broad audience to play video games. It doesn't right. play video games now, right? Well, I remember when these comedy games were around, my, my father used to play them all the time because he mm -hmm. thought they were funny. You mm -hmm. know, it's not a first-person or third-person shooter. 
Although he, pl- he plays those two, I guess. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? But you're saying it attracts a different audience. It attracts audience. a different audience. I think yeah. it's totally different it's like than the people that would be attracted. So if people, if the publishers want to diversify their audience or expand it, I guess, they should probably look at comedy. I think it, it is a total genre that's sort of missing right now that they could totally fill and bring in new people to gaming. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It could, something that could be shared between generations. I mean... And I think, you know, along the same lines, and I, I'm sure we've touched on it many times here, I think the adventure game, you know, genre has pretty much died too, right? Pretty much. And I think that too, you know, you could expand the audience. Because again, what, as we talked about earlier, there's a lot more writing, there's a lot more story. And I think some people will, would enjoy that. And I just think that's missing today as well. The closer you th- thing you have is like an RPG, but that's totally different, I think, from an adventure game. Well, do you remember when Myst first came out? Yeah. That was, you know, a game that was famous for getting non-gamers interested because they saw this this interesting 3D rendered first-person world that was very beautiful and and it was a, a different style of gameplay than, you know, playing Doom or something. Right, and that was almost still frames. It know? was it was still, still frames. It was still yeah. frames, yeah. Yeah, it was still frames. Yeah. Hey, there was some movement you would see certain oh, yeah, things. Yeah, you would see. Like, I think there was like. Yeah. I think like off in the in the distance, you could see like a windmill slowly turning. Or well, something. I remember like I opened a door or something, and I saw. <laughs> and you moved the lever, but yeah. there was yeah. not that much no. uh, animation. No, not at all. So, but the key was in the puzzle solving and the and the weird story and the yeah. interesting story. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So, what does the future hold? Okay, so I was kind of curious about this whole comedy thing, and so I went to the source. I uh, sent a couple emails to Al Lowe. He's a guy who did Leisure Suit Larry, which Tom touched on earlier. Yeah. And he's working on a new game. It's called Sam Suede and Undercover Exposure. So uh, his goal is to combine uh, humor, action, stealth, and more humor. <laughs> uh, I, like, I like including stealth in there. Yeah, that's good. He says it's not an adventure game, but it will appeal to all those who played my games in the past. So I sent him a question, and I was like, you know, so why do you think publishers are reluctant to do these? And his, this is a quote from me. Why? I have no idea. Comedy works everywhere else. Why do publishers think it won't work here? It's exactly what Sam Suede was created to cure, is what he basically said to me. I would love to play that game. If he's doing yeah, another game, too. I'm exci- that's exciting. Yeah. So, I- <laughs> Tim Schafer, Psychonauts, he's always producing good comedy uh, software, so obviously I think he'll be producing more that we can play. And, and maybe this time people will actually play it. <laughs> like so, Psychonauts, yeah. but... Yeah, I think eventually, like say Sam Suede does minimal or, or marginally well, I think more publishers might turn on to the idea that there's a market that they're not they're not tapping right now and maybe start producing more games. At least oh, really? I hope so. I really yeah, hope let's so. hope so. All right, so I think that's uh, about wraps it up for comedy. I guess we talked about comedy and adventure all in one, but that, I guess that's good. So uh, in the next segment, we're going to be talking about what we're currently playing. Upward and onward. All right, Tom, go ahead. You want me to talk about what I'm playing? Yeah. Okay, um, I've We're only... take a break, Tom. <laughs> Dude. Did you know that was coming? Well, I was like, you I'm not... I'm, I'm taking a break. I was like, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to have to take a break. <laughs> See, that's comedy right there. That is comedy. Comedy gold. How many times can Tom fall for it? <laughs>
All right, it's time for what we're currently playing. What are you playing, Tom? Is this for real this time? Yeah, it's for real. You want me to really say <laughs> Yeah, I really want you to talk. Okay. Well, we don't want you to, but it's, it's, it's part of the show. <laughs> it's part of the go show. Go ahead. Okay. Well, Chris posted to the forums at Twitch Asylum a link to this game called Dungeon Escape. Where did you find that, Tom? At twitchasylum.com. Where? In the forums. Oh, in the forums, okay. Yeah. And the game's really funny. It's sort of like a Dragon's Lair, and it's a Flash-based game you can play on the web for free. And everything's in this kind of silly stick figure style, and it's just a crack up. And it is a game that, even though it's so simple, I mean, all you really do is click on a certain part of the screen to progress or, or not. But it's so simple, but it really hooks you, and it's very, very fun. So I recommend giving it a try. It's a free game you can play. It's cool because it's so like stick figures, but it's so much like Dragon's Lair. You get that feel exactly. of Dragon's Lair. If you've ever played Dragon's Lair, you play this game. It's the like gameplay. Immediately, you're like, dude, yeah. it's like Dragon's Lair. You know, like when you die, uh, you, that you appear in a different spot. Yeah, you don't necessarily restart from the exact place where you failed, yeah. so you don't get a chance to keep practicing that one thing. And it has the death scenes like in Dragon's Lair, all the different yeah. death scenes yeah. and stuff. So it's really cool, and it's pretty challenging. I mean, it's not a trivial it's game to finish. It's not a simple game. It's very funny. You know, those death scenes in Dragon's Lair were a lot like precursors to the fatalities in Mortal it, Kombat. It, yeah. Oh, true. I never thought of it that yeah, way. it's yeah. very true. Yeah. Okay, another game I'm playing is I rented Need for Speed for the 360. And that's sad, really. Well, when this game first came out, I played a demo of it in the stores, and I wasn't very impressed. And but wrenching it and playing it, I'm having quite a bit of fun. And I think the actual game is much better than the demo. Um, there's just more variety. It's more interesting. I just kind of like it. It's it's good. I I still would probably rent it and not buy it, but it's a fun game. So what do you like about it? I like just the the overall atmosphere that you're racing through this very open ended world. Um, there's a there's just some sort of fun adrenaline hook to it that you just you so know. when I played the demo it it had really good graphics I thought the graphics were uh-huh. good but the thing that was odd is it every once in a while it seemed to like lock up for a second and then it, it almost it had, would have like slowdown issues. yeah slowdown does it have slowdown issues I have not retail? seen any slowdown issues so far and so that may have been just the demo. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's kind of like full auto had the same issues. There yeah. were a lot of slowdowns in the demo, but the release game didn't really have. I, there were still slowdowns in the release, but not as bad. So. Um, I also rented Blazing Angels: Squadrons of World War Two for right. the Xbox 360. Yeah, um, it's it's a game that it looks kind of good. You know, the visuals are pretty good. I think you get to drop leaflets, right? <clears throat> you get to drop leaflets. Yeah, um, <laughs> in your bombs. training mission. In your training mission, since you're over friendly territory, they make you drop leaflets, which is. <laughs> You know, not quite as cool as seeing something explode. Which, which they put on the demo, which to me, that probably affected their sales. Because people were like, <laughs> I don't know why I'm dropping leaflets. It seems Well, also, boring. in the training mission, you fly a biplane, and, and then in the real missions, you don't. That's odd. So, um, well, see, it, it makes you feel like the CIA dropping the revolutionary leaflets throughout <laughs> South right. America. Propaganda. Yeah, propaganda. Well, we, we do that in Iraq, too, yeah, right? We drop yeah. things. Anyway. Um, well, here's the thing about the game. When I flew around for the first time and I looked down, I saw this very detailed landscape with all the houses and the trees and everything. It was kind of cool. And I thought, you know, this is a game that years ago, at least, I would have really been impressed and really into. The thing about it, though, the more I played it, I started to feel like the game just is not that complicated. There's not that much to it. You fly around and you shoot. 
Um, maybe, a game Woody know, would probably like. I, I haven't gotten all the way through, so who knows? Maybe there's something <laughs> really, really complex that happens later. But so far, it's pretty much you steer around and you shoot. There's it, The physics of flying don't seem all that super detailed. It's not like a s- detailed simulator. simulator. So... Um, See, I'm against any game that you can fly an airplane in because I consider them to be terrorist training tools. Correct. <laughs> I totally agree, Woody. Oh, but uh, well, I, I'm glad you had fun. Anyway, with your I, terrorist training this is tool. another game. <laughs> Aren't you the one that on episode one was flying his plane, his remote control plane? Yeah, that was the helicopter. Oh yeah, oh, helicopter. Yeah. Oh, okay, I guess it's a helicopter. That's okay. But that, that's not a that's not a simulator. Oh yeah, that's, it actually oh, yeah, yeah. was. It, it was, was a, a simulator. RC simulator. Yeah. You could put a bomb on an RC helicopter, though. <laughs> Just don't, don't do give it. any ideas. Oh. Yeah. See now, okay. Oh, man. Now you've already in. you've already told them what to do. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. might have. For all we know, that might have been a coded message telling them to do that. And there's this <laughs> guy who has an RC helicopter with a bomb on it. You know where it came from? Twitch Silent Movie Game Radio. Check out the forums. <laughs> this podcast is now my alibi. Okay, so Blazing Angels. Back to that. It's another game. I'd say rent. Probably rather than buy. It's kind of fun. It's neat to see the visuals. There's one thing that really bugs me about it, which is that you can hear the other pilots talking. Like, the enemy pilots, you can hear what they're saying, which doesn't really make any sense. Like, why would you be able to hear the enemy pilots talking to each other? Well, maybe back in the day they were able to intercept their signals and but listen to it. it. But wouldn't they at least be talking in German? I mean, this is in the, they're in English. <laughs> is this World War Two? It's World War Two. yeah. Well, didn't everybody have ESP back in World War Two? I don't, oh, I don't know. Maybe they that. had uh, babblefishes in their ear. Yeah. And, and it just uh, translates instantly oh, in English. Anyway. Um. No, I agree. Sometimes <laughs> it's really annoying when a game just does something completely unrealistic. And you think, it's just like... It's just a game, you think, but well, it's, at it, first it, it I didn't provide some explanation. You know, sci-fi. at first I didn't even understand it because I heard these guys talking and they're like, "I see him, stay with your wingman," and all this stuff. And I thought it was my own allies, allies saying that because yeah. that's the only thing that would have made sense. But it, my allies weren't anywhere near me, and I eventually figured out, no, those are the enemy pilots. And then I'm just confused because, like, why am I hearing the enemy pilots that's talk? That's a bizarre game design choice. And it's, I gotta say. I guess they just wanted to have some sort of more more going on in the game because right. otherwise all you hear is the engine noise or something. Yeah. But because without um, the chatter, you realize the game's boring. Or I don't know, maybe. but it was strange. <laughs> I, I don't think you really realize that even. <laughs> and then the final video game is not really a video game that I've been playing, but it's a video game like experience, which is that I bought a new motorcycle last weekend and I went to Fry's and I got a really inexpensive on sale. GPS navigation system, and I mounted it on the motorcycle. And so now I can have, and it's the kind that can plot the route for you and show you where to turn and everything like that. And so I can have that on my new motorcycle, which is kind of fun. Awesome. So it makes you feel like you're playing a video game because you have like the 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 auto map. (laughs) All right, so what are you guys playing? What are you playing, Woody? Well, like Tom, I have something that's not really a game. I just got a new uh, big flat screen TV, and I've been playing a lot in the uh, setup mode. And I gotta say, the color tuning level is phenomenal. I thought you got the flashback. <laughs> yeah, no, I. But I, in in truth, I got. I actually bought the Atari Flashback, which is the twenty six hundred emulator we talked about a few episodes. Okay, ago. so let me get this straight. It's not an emulator, by the way. You bought a giant forty two inch plasma TV, <laughs> and you're playing the Atari Flashback. Bought the most on retro it. game console you can buy. Yeah, yeah. yep. That's awesome. But you should I see combat that. on it. Stunning. Oh, oh, those those block pixels are those amazing. big pixels look beautiful. Yes, yes. <laughs> no, but I'm I'm having fun. I'm playing the combat, which I you. 
I didn't remember what the name of that game was until I started playing yeah. it. But a lot of fun. Um, Pitfall. It comes. It's like a twenty six hundred. Has a bunch of games built in. So I've been playing those. It doesn't have Pac Man, which was always my favorite twenty six hundred game. I know a lot of people hate that, but you know why it doesn't have Pac Man? Because they sell it separately. Licensing. Licensing. Of course. Yeah. Uh, sorry, that should have been the first word out of my mouth. <laughs> um, but that's about it. Been having fun with that. Cool. All, All right. right. So uh, I've been playing Quake Four. Believe it or not, I'm kind of going right? on 360. I'm going back and playing a lot of the launch titles I, I missed out, I guess, on. Uh-huh. Because really, there hasn't been that much coming out recently. So I bought a bunch of launch titles, hadn't finished them, so I went back and I started playing Quake 4. And I, I like it. I think it's a pretty good game, which is surprising because I think the reviews on it weren't too good. But I thought the demo looked pretty good. The demo's pretty good. A lot of the problems I think people had with it, and there are issues, is uh, frame rate drops during the game. But overall, the game's pretty fun. It's challenging. Pretty decent graphics. Uh, is it true you have to use the flashlight all the time? You do have to use flashlight. Well, one of your guns has flashlight on it, so when you're using that gun, you can uh, you can use flashlight. Yeah, they at least Raven learned from uh, the the Doom Three disaster and realized that you could actually attach flashlights to a gun. Yeah. So. so one reason <laughs> I do like the game, like I, I have Perfect Dark Zero as well, and yeah. I kind of like them both about the same. But the reason I'm playing Quake Four is I can obtain achievements in single player mode. Which sort of irritates me about a lot oh, of the games yeah. that have multiplayer. Like Perfect Dark Zero, I think if you finish the whole game, you get 50 points in right. single player mode. And all the other achievements are for multiplayer. And to me, and that's, some of them are like 1,000 headshots in right. multiplayer. <laughs> so when you buy a game like that, say Perfect Dark Zero, now with the 360 where you get these achievements, are you more reluctant to play through the whole single player when you have another game that you have that you're going to get more points from the single player? Or does it really affect your decision? Um, it doesn't anymore. Because I have, I no longer care that much about how many exact achievement points I'm getting. Because I have, I think, over three thousand now. But when I first got the 360 and I had zero, or I had like 100, I was really desperate to get a few more so I wouldn't appear completely hopeless. <laughs> but now that I have more, it's like I don't really care whether something is going to be worth ten points or twenty or fifty. Or I don't really think of it that way. I just play the games to have fun. But I might check and see what the achievements are. So, but say you have a game that's somewhat mediocre, but there's points to be had. Are you more likely to finish it? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Well, see, I gotta say, the fact that there's no standardizing mechanism for, like, difficulty of achieving points between games really makes the aggregate points um, a lot less meaningful to me. Points within a single game are great for comparison, but just looking at... You say that, but then, like, the thing is, when I look at a player and he's got, like, 11,000 points... You know, he's probably a pretty serious gamer. Well, yeah. yeah. It's just kind of weird because it's like hit and miss. Like I say, you can finish Perfect Dark Zero and get 50 points. Yeah. You know, you can play Madden for an hour and get 1,000. So, that, but that's what I'm saying. Is, yeah, someone who has a huge score like that, obviously they're a great player. But if you're comp- trying to compare two people to see what their scores mean, who's better, the fact that because one person bought one game and another person bought another game, that that in and of itself can make a difference of 1,000 points, that makes it a little less meaningful. I want it to be meaningful. I love the idea yeah. of you know comparing, but there needs to be some quality control on how the publishers allocate points. To me, it's it's not really the points. It's like... It's the particular achievement. Like, if yeah. I saw somebody who actually had the 1,000 headshot kills in Perfect Dark Zero, or if I saw somebody who had these real esoteric achievements that that particular achievement would be really, really hard to do, 
then that would be very impressive. Okay, more, but, more so than just the point But total. tell me this, Tom. When you're playing a single-player game and you clear a level and you see the little thing that says achievement unlocked come on screen, you get some satisfaction from that, right? Of course. Yeah. You feel good about that. You when do, you're playing yeah. Perfect Target Zero, you don't get that till the end and it's 50 points. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So, yeah. like, to me, that just isn't a but lot of motivation. It, so that makes you not want to finish it makes the me game? Not want, I don't want to spend all my time playing it when I could be playing a game that's equally as fun like Quake and getting points from it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So if I look at them side by side, I'm like, well, they're about the same, but I can play Perfect Dark Zero and get that big 50-point achievement at the end, or I can play <laughs> Quake 4 and get some points. So that's why I'm playing Quake 4. I don't think I'll ever finish Perfect Dark Zero. It's a, it's a pretty mediocre single-player game. And I and sometimes if it's a mediocre game and I'm getting achievements, I'll play it. And I guess that's my point. I'm not okay. going to, you know, so I don't know. So they're bribing you with achievements yeah, to play. Yeah, mini rant, I guess. but To uh, play mediocre yeah, games. So. <laughs> what else are you playing? Uh, playing, uh, I picked up Rockstar Table Tennis. I'm really curious about that one. That's the next one that I'm going to get from Gamefly. Yeah, I, I'm having a blast with it. I think it's a great game. And I've read a lot of people's reviews, and it's kind of, you know, I guess it's getting mediocre scores, maybe like 7.9 out of 10, which is not horrible, but... Have you played Top Spin 2? No, I haven't played Top Spin 2, but I'm not a big tennis fan. And I guess that's a difference between mm-hmm. this game, is it's really fast action. I've played Top Spin 2 a little bit, and... It seems surprisingly difficult. Like, there's all these different kinds of shots you have to learn to master, and the timing on them is a little tricky. Maybe I'm just bad at the game, but it seemed seemed more difficult than I would have expected. Right. Well, that's not really an issue here, but uh, I think what's kind of nice about Rockstar Table Tennis is they do have a lot of different aspects to the game it's fairly simple to pick up and start playing but yeah that was my point is is it is it pretty easy to get going it's totally easy to get going now if you want to be a master at it there's a lot of stuff you can do and Mm -hmm. i think they do a lot of kind of new gameplay elements that i haven't seen in the tennis games you know any of the tennis games so there's stuff like when the ball is coming to you it'll have a little halo around it that indicates the type of spin the person put on who's hitting it to you now it's going back and forth real fast so what you can do is if you pick exactly the same kind of shot, you you essentially knock it back at them using that same shot, and it's supposed to uh, kind of negate that spin. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. So, but it's hard to pick up because the ball is going real fast. So you have to instantly decide like what color is that ball right. and what does that mean. And it's like very instantaneous DDR. And how do you control the spin <laughs> that you're putting on the ball? Uh, buttons. There's four buttons. So uh, you know, there's a, t- a forward, back, left, and oh, right. Oh, so type which spin. button you press to make the shot? Yes. Determines the spin. Yeah, the okay. spin. Now, what's kind of cool about it, too, is you, once you decide, here's the kind of shot I'm going to have, you kind of angle where you want the ball to hit, and it uses a vibration to tell you how close you are to the edge of the table. So if it vibrates really hard, that means hmm. you're probably going to knock it out of bounds. So you can kind of adjust your shot based on the amount of vibration that you're getting. Like as how much feet. risk you're going to take on the shot. Right, exactly. And that's really cool that they're using vibration for a game element. It's not just something that's like, I shot something, here's some feedback. It's it's a crucial gameplay it's element. It's helping you decide something. Yeah. So that's I guess cool. that game's not going to be on the PS3, right? <laughs> I was just thinking that, yeah. <laughs> Maybe not. So the other thing is uh, when you decide that you're going to make a shot, you kind of want to hold down the button and that gets a amount of, it, you get this reserve built up and then you can make more powerful shots. So um, there's there's a bunch of different gameplay can elements. You, can you vary how far away you stand from the table? Yeah, you can vary that, yeah. So do well. you control yourself separate from the paddle? Like can you move your body and move the paddle separate? Well, kind of. Not really, though. So Hmm. once you hit that you're going to hit it, then you can adjust the shot. So it's like you move around until you decide that you're going to hit Then you can kind of adjust that. So that's cool. But one thing about the game is there's not much single-player functionality. It's kind of limited. 
there's like tournaments. You can do these different tournaments, and there's like easy, medium, hard, and very hard. And a lot of the achievements are based on using different characters to go through the tournament, so you continually replay these tournaments. Hmm. There's not a career mode, which a lot of the games, like I know Top Spin 2 has, like a lot of the tennis Yeah, there's a lot of career stuff in So there's not much career stuff in this game, but you know, you have these tournaments that you play through. But the real, uh, I think the shining part of this game is online. It's great to play people online. I bet that's fun. It's, it's, it's awesome. Can you play two-player on the same machine, like split-screen or anything? Yeah, you can play. It's not split-screen, but you can play two at the... One's on one side, one's on the other. But it works pretty well. I played with Amy's brother, and we played it for a long time, and we had no problem. You, you switch. So one person's on one, and then you switch. Oh, it's like who's the close one and the far one? Yeah, it switches switch? that so you both have equal opportunity That's cool. to play the game. So it, it's definitely cool. The A lot of the, uh, a lot of the achievements are based on how many times you win. Like there's like you can, if you win, uh, I think it's three games in a row, you get an achievement, five games in a row, you get achievement, 10 <laughs> games in a row, you get an achievement. And I'd won three games in a row and I was about to win my fourth. And here's another thing I hate about Xbox Live. It really upset me. It really pisses me off, to be honest with you, is I was up on this guy on my second game and he disconnected. <laughs> like two points before I was about to beat him. So I would have had four games in a row. But, you know, I don't get any credit for that, even though I was about to defeat him. That's too bad. Yeah. I, th- I think you should get credit. You should get credit. You should be smart about that, but but it wasn't, so uh, so I didn't get credit so, for it. But. So good game, overall. It's a great game. I think it's a great game. Oh, the other thing I was going to say about it is a lot of people, because it has limited single-player uh, modes, like tournament mode, mm-hmm. they say it should be an Xbox Live arcade game. Oh, yeah. I've right. That. And it's it's thirty nine ninety nine. I think probably the best price would have been twenty nine ninety nine for the amount of, of game you get. But, uh, but it could never be an Xbox Live arcade game. And the reason is... At least currently, all the Xbox Live games have to be able to fit on a memory card. That's for those people who bought the crippled version. Right, of the they bought the crippled version. So it can't, at least now, they, Microsoft regulates that and says that you can't create any games. And just the character models in this are, you, you can see that the game is going to be pretty big. Because very rich character models, it would weigh, you know, outsize the memory card capacity. You know, i I got to say what I find most interesting about this, um, just because it's so rare is the fact that uh, Rockstar had such a success with a game that is a complete divergence from their standard. Right. I mean, they went to a sports game from from more action. They went to uh, family-friendly fair. Right. And they went yeah. to multiplayer, whereas all their classic, the, their greatest hits were all just huge single-player. Right. Um, so I, I just found it's interesting that they could make that transition and be, and be successful. It's Rockstar San Diego, so I don't know who makes the other Rockstar so games. So it probably might not be the same development teams, I think it's But even within one company, right. it can be that's impressive. But that's why I think you might see that diversification, because you have completely separated teams doing, right. doing the development. Right. So. Yeah, interesting. But it's a, it's a good game. Hitman Blood Money Demo. Did you play that, Tom? No, I haven't. What is that like? So, well, it's just like the other Hitman games, but on the 360, pretty much. <laughs> is it good? It's it's all right. You know, it's not too bad. I, I'm thinking about picking it up as soon as I finish Quake 4. It's it's a good little single-player game to play. Uh, but I played through it, and Amy was watching, and we kind of thought it was violent, because in one scene, which I don't care about, but I had to hear it from Amy, <laughs> uh, in one scene, you shoot a couple bad guys, and, you know... Instead of just running off like in most games where you shoot them, yet you essentially drag the bodies and put one in like a refrigerator or, uh, or like a 
freezer and another in a box. So it's pretty graphic. Okay. You can drag yeah. them across the floor. Well, you can do that in Metal, in Metal Gear Solid, right? Yeah. You can drag and hide the bodies. Right. So anyway, I mean, it's somewhat violent, right? Mm-hmm. And Amy's like, yeah, these games are getting too violent. You know, is whatever. it real gory with blood everywhere not or something? Re- no, it's not that bad. Hmm. It's not that bad. But the thing is, you know, and I've heard a lot when people say games are getting as violent as movies and blah, 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 right? You hear that? Well, uh, yeah. yeah. It's ramping it, up. Yeah. So... That night, this is what's great. We saw the movie Hostel. Have you seen the movie Hostel? I saw the ads, no. and that was enough for me to no, like what, not want to watch TV. I don't for even a know what weeks. that is. What is it? It's the Quentin Tarantino movie. Oh, okay. And <laughs> comparing the the gore in Hostel to that game, it was like comedy. Like looking at that game, it, it was like Leisure Suit Larry, right? <laughs> in comparison to this game, it's like I mean, this movie, it's insane, dude. There's so much violence. There's so much blood. There's so much gore. In and, the movie. And yeah. it's like movies back when we were kids were like Jason and Freddy, right? Yeah. yeah. And now it's all about torture and, you know... Right. It, I don't, like, all these movies that are coming out, like, what what are some of the movies that I've seen recently? Saw. The, uh, Saw. Saw. Saw and Saw 2. Oh, yeah. There's one. And, there, and there's also... Uh, there's this one about an Australian in the Australian Outback. Have you heard about that one? No. Anyway, it's the same kind of thing. <laughs> it's a, it's all about torture. And I'm like, these games aren't anything compared to that. So as games get more violent over time, it feels to me like movies are moving at the same rate, you know, and they're getting more violent. So games are still way behind in terms of violence, in my opinion, anyway. <laughs> so are you saying games have some catching up to do? A lot of catching up to do. I'm just saying that like people say that they're as violent as movies, but they're not. Like they're not even close yeah. to the current movies. And I think it's because movies are getting more violent. So I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm just saying that by comparison, the game was pretty funny. So and the other thing I've been playing, I've been playing Joust on the Atari ST. This is just sad, but uh, <laughs> at work we've been playing a ton of Joust, and we're keeping high scores on paper because there's because there's them. no leaderboard. Yeah, but it's great during the day. We play it off and on, and it's pretty fun. It's almost like Xbox Live Arcade at work, you know, comparing our <laughs> scores on Joust for the Atari ST. And I did pre-order a Nintendo DS Lite. All right. So uh, when does that? You come heard out? they broke the street date. Yeah, we're that. talking about that in the news section. Oh, later, but thanks, interesting. Thanks for the precursor. Yeah, yeah, the plug for the next segment. Yeah, there you go. So, guys. yeah, and that was kind of irritating that they uh, that they did. Yeah, I think they made a lot of people mad. So, uh, I I think it's June 10th when mine comes in. So, ah, cool. so I'm looking forward to it though. I think that'll be cool. And I played a couple Apple games, which we'll discuss later in the Sierra segment of the show. Okay. So that's pretty much it. All right. All right, it's time for the news. Take it away, Tom. All right, there's a CNN article that says... Global Gaming League, a media company focused on the lifestyle and culture of gaming, is currently talking with the Chinese government in hopes of bringing competitive video gaming to the 2008 games as a demonstration sport. So they're seeking Olympic status for video gaming. Nice. What do you guys think about that? Well, I don't think I'm going to be in the Olympics anytime soon, if that's what you're You're not? You're not going to represent America? No. I mean, I would, but I'm just not good enough. What do you you think? called by your country. I might. If, maybe if it was something like combat for the 2600, I might have a chance. <laughs> but I'm thinking that's probably not going to be the games they're talking about. What, do they mention the games that they're thinking about? No, I don't think they're for? mentioning specific games. Let me tell you why I think this is a bad idea. 
I really, as much as I love video games, I don't want video games to be in the Olympics. Why? The reason it's not a sport. I mean, if you let video games be in the Olympics, neither is curling, but that's well, there. No, but curling involves some physical, physical. I'm moving the joystick. Curling's a sport. Anything that has objective measurements of score is a, is a decent sport. But I'll tell it's you the, the problem: we have aesthetic judging <laughs> that aren't sports. That's true. The I'll pole, tell you the yeah. problem though: if you allow video games in the Olympics, why don't you have an Olympics for like playing Monopoly? Exactly. Or playing cr- I think or doing crossword puzzles. Right. I or, agree. Or why don't you put Sudoku in the Olympics? Scrabble. Scrabble. I mean, it just it just opens the door to why isn't everything in the Olympics? I mean, there has to be some kind of I think physical challenge, a physical component to something. To be an Olympic sport, I also don't think that introducing all these demonstration sports is worthwhile. And in fact, I, I heard that the Olympics is going away from even having demonstration sports. So, um, like what? Boris? Well, oh, there have been other demonstration sports suggested, like motorcycle racing, things that aren't official Olympic medal sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, I, I think they're the, moving away from even having demonstration sports. I thought the demonstration sports was what they used to test out like new sports that they would think about adding later like i believe That's snowboarding was a demonstration be. sport before yeah that it was. is what it used to be okay i think they're they're moving away from even doing that though because they want the focus to be on the real metal sports so anyway i'm against video games in the olympics um i think it's just sort of ridiculous uh, video games should be its own if, if you want to have your own competition for video games and have a world series of video games that's great but i don't think it belongs in the olympics at all well and certainly i think they'd lose a lot of ratings because a lot of people watch the olympics just to see all the uh you know athletic prowess you get some gamers up there live in person <laughs> yeah it's not gonna be a pretty sight no no all right so another new story is that the world's first psp mod chip uh, is going to be released soon we talked about last episode that uh, Tom and I are still on 1.5 and we're not going to upgrade until they, they get some good games out there. That's right. Yeah. With this mod chip, apparently, that won't be an issue because we could put the mod chip in, keep it 1.5, and still play the new games on the PSP. But my problem with that is it costs $90 for this mod chip. $90? $90, yeah. So. You can almost just buy a second PSP. Right. Well, it's, you probably soon will be able to the way they're selling. <laughs> but, so, yeah, I think it's... About eight months too late. I think if a PSP mod chip had come out about eight months ago, I probably would have bought it and installed it so I could switch between the 1.5 firmware and the latest firmware. But right now, like, who cares? There's no game still on the PSP that I care about. Why do I want to spend ninety dollars? You go buy and buy a DS for one twenty or whatever. You know, it really doesn't make any sense. And there's a lot of talk, I guess, recently about the new PSP that they're talking about, like PSP Plus or a new PSP version. Have you talked about that or heard about that? What's that gonna have? I don't really know right now. Some rumors are that it's going to have a hard drive built in, so, and a lot of the games are going to be downloaded, apparently. Hmm. So I don't know. It's If they do release a new device like that, I mean, that's just ridiculous because the PSP isn't even that old. But And all the people who bought the original PSP probably won't be able to upgrade, right? So No. So. You're just going to have to sell that, get the PSP Plus or whatever it is. Yeah. That so. would actually make me kind of mad. Like, why didn't they do <laughs> well, it right to begin with? Exactly. So I, I don't know if that's, you know, there's a lot of talk about it, if it will happen or not. I mean, that remains to be seen. It's cool that they did finally get a PSP mod chip out, you know, that gives you that flexibility. And maybe if there's a ton of new PSP games that come out, I might consider putting this mod chip in. For, but for $90, I don't really care, you know. And I'm still playing all the emulators. And that's really all I care about right on my PSP right now. <laughs> And speaking of the DS, you ordered one of those, or the DS Lite, you ordered one of those. Yeah, right? I ordered DS Lite, and of course, uh, and Woody mentioned it earlier, they uh, they went on sale the other day. I heard Walmart and Target broke the uh, right. 
broke the release. Major Nelson, uh, the guy from Xbox, had it on his blog pictures of the one he picked up. So he apparently <laughs> went out and picked up. So I drove around. And, of course, when I got there, both the Target and Walmart had already sold out of all their DS lights. <laughs> so, unfortunately, I'm going to have to wait till the 10th. But I, what do you think is going to happen? You know, Nintendo is probably going to be pretty upset about that, right? How, why did they start selling them? What do you think happened? I mean, I, just, I have no idea why they would do that. Well, I think, and I actually heard someone rambling about it, probably on G4 in the background today. Um, they, I, they were talking about how it's not, it's the little stores that Nintendo can actually flex muscle over, your local mom and pop. But what's Nintendo actually going to do to Walmart? I mean, they, they're not going to be able to do anything to Walmart. Walmart doesn't care what Nintendo thinks. So it, I think Walmart and, and Target did it just because they can. But, I mean, do you think they really said, hey, we got these and we're going to go ahead and sell them because they can't do anything to us? I mean, it had to be some kind of mistake, right? That they didn't know they weren't supposed to put them out? I'm sure the the official line will be it's a mistake. Personally, I think it's company policy. The managers get them in stock. They throw them on the shelf. Say, why don't we start selling (laughs) early? We'll get the, the jump. Because and the then jump and they're going to sell out anyway. I'm not sure. Well, uh, they just they don't care. They just throw them on the shelves, and it, it, I think it's a tacit policy because I don't. They'll there won't be any retribution on those managers from the higher ups because right. the higher ups don't care because Nintendo can't do anything. Right. So I think the the losers in all this are the little stores that want to sell. No, the loser is me who pre-ordered. <laughs> and I didn't get my DS. I gotta wait to get my DS. I'm the loser. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, in more ways than one, but definitely on the DS front. And on the subject of other handhelds, what else? Oh, have oh you no! Got? Before we get to the other handhelds, uh, one thing I would say that I found interesting about going to uh, Target and Walmart is they both had a ton of Xbox 360s. Really, a ton. So, what does that? Have mean? they lowered the price yet? No, I'm waiting for it to get down to 200. Well, I'm, the, I'm the, cheap. I remember <laughs> them saying it'll be like six months before you'll be able to go and buy them in stores. And how long has it been? It's been a little over six months, right? December Something to like, May, yeah. So you think supplies yeah. just finally caught up? I guess so. They finally caught up. They had it like almost exactly six months. how they months. can so accurately predict. Yeah, yes. six yeah. months in there. <laughs> but yeah, there was a ton of 360s. So I, I was kind of surprised that there were that many. I mean, all their shelves, mm-hmm. you know, like in Target, were full of uh, premium wow. 360. So, interesting. So yeah, the other uh, handheld console we were going to talk about a bit is the GP2X. I guess the F100's been released. GP2X F100. And people that listen to Retro Gaming Radio is uh, is a device that they've been talking about there a lot. And it's a Linux-based handheld, and uh, it's a pretty big screen. It looks good. Uh, the one thing that's nice about it, it has the TV out. It plays all the media formats, you know, DivX, XVID, all those kind of things, which is nice because the PSP can't do those. And it has all the emulators already on it because the whole idea behind this device is to get people to... Uh, to produce software on it, to do ports of all the games, to run all the emulators on it, so it's running basically anything you can run. You know that's uh, that's so in- all the classic games can be emulated, right? So we're talking about Sierra this month, and it already has the Sierra based emulators, but of course wow. the PSP doesn't. So I was kind of feeling bad about that. And then again, <laughs> you know, it's totally something that Sony doesn't condone. So you have to r- jump all these hoops to get them to run on the PSP, and it's just like. I almost want to just go buy a GP2X so I can do all my emulation on that. And they're cheaper. There's like 189 I saw it for. So How does the screen compare to the PSP screen? It's very comparable. Yeah. It's not widescreen, so that's that's a difference, but it looks real sharp. People say it looks great. So, you know, Well, for I'm, emulation, the widescreen wouldn't really matter exactly, much anyway, right? Exactly. So, 
I'm pretty interested in getting a GP2X. I don't know when I'm going to do it, but um, but it's something I'm, I'm going to look into. So would you trade your PSP for that? I would definitely. If anybody out there has a GP2X <laughs> and they want to trade a PSP with 1.5 firmware for it, give me a call because, or, or send, me, send me a private message on the forum, twitchtime.com slash forum, and, uh, and I may trade. I, I will trade. So, so there you go. All right. They should have that policy, like this trade-in for the GP2X bird. We'll take your PSP and trade. <laughs> okay. So anyway. It should be like a car dealership. You can just trade in yeah. your old game for it. So uh, so what's this about Indiana Jones? Oh, there's this game. Uh, I guess a bunch of college students have made their own. You know, we were talking about the classic adventure games, the graphical adventure games. We're going to talk about that a little more when we get to Sierra Online segment. But these college students have made their own Indiana Jones adventure game, and it's done in the style of the old graphical adventures. And uh, you can go and look at it online and see screen- screenshots and even download a demo. And uh, we'll have a link to it from the site. I don't think the full game's done yet. It's just a demo. Yeah, right? just a demo. Yeah. But we'll link to that from our site. And uh, I don't know. From the screenshots, it looked very good. It looked very professional. It looked like a, a fun game that I would really be interested did, did to see. Did you play it, the demo? I have not played the demo yet. Okay. I just looked at the screenshots. I downloaded it and played the demo, and it was great. It was just like the, the classic adventure games that you remember from Sierra with, uh, with Indiana mm-hmm. Jones. Now, do they have official approval for this? Because I know, like, George, to license the yeah, Indiana Jones property. Uh, my understanding is George Lucas isn't really a freewheeling guy with his intellectual property licensing. I, it, I'm just curious. I, I, I could well, see I that site being shut down. If, I if think they don't. George Lucas has let people make amateur Star Wars content things oh, as trash. long as they didn't right. charge money for it. Right, yeah. right. And these people are not charging money for the. Um, Indiana Jones one either. So maybe it's the same kind of a deal. I don't know. I don't know about the legalities yeah. of it. I just know that the game looks really good. And Interesting. It, it looks like something I'm going to have to try. And uh, the website, if you want to link to it, is www.barnettcollege.com. It's Barnett with two Ts. Right. And just one thing I'll mention again is, and I think this came up on the forums too, people were asking for links from the, the last show. And if you go to our homepage uh, at twitchsimon.com, there's a, a link on the left that's podcast, and there's a menu for all of the previous podcasts. And if you, you pick one of those, it'll have all the links on that particular page. For the things that we mentioned. For the things we mentioned. So all the links for each show is categorized, and you can go right on the website, click on podcast, pick the date, and you should be able to get to all the links. So we'll have all the links that are mentioned in this show, and obviously all the previous shows are already on there. So if you want to go, go ahead and check it out. The uh, the other new story is IGN is revisiting Sega's Dreamcast. I thought this was pretty cool. Yeah, they're going back through all the Dreamcast titles. Every single one, 250, 250 games, titles. Yeah. And they're going to play through them and review them all again. Yeah, I guess the idea is to, to go through all those games and see if they still stack up or how well they stack up against today's current uh, generation of game systems. And I, I kind of think it's going to do pretty well. I think yeah. it will do pretty well, too. I think yeah. a lot of those games do hold up. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, all the games that they review. I think they did like San Francisco Rush 2049 was one of the first games they reviewed. And like Bang Gunship Elite, but they're going to go through one by one and do reviews of all 250, which is pretty ambitious if you think about it. That's a lot of time to invest in a in yeah. a dead console. But all right, on to the retro respect. Uno, dos, tres, cuatro. 
So in this segment, we're going to talk about the history of Sierra Online. Sierra Online, great adventure games back in the day. And ironically, not really online, since it was before the internet. Well, there is a story about that, and we'll get to it, Woody. There is Interesting. A, there is a reason why it's called online. See, not, not only the listeners are going to learn something, but you're going to learn something. <laughs> I, learned, I learned something new Apparently, every day. Woody didn't look through the show notes. All right. I like to go in fresh. <laughs> so, the time was the late 70s, Los Angeles, California... Ken and Roberta Williams got married very young. Yeah, they were like they were... 18 or 19. And I just want to say before we get into the details, a lot of this information came from Hackers, that book, as well right. as a lot of resources on the web. So, uh, so yeah, they got married when they were 18 or 19. And uh, Apparently, I... Ken faked his way into some programming jobs by claiming that he had skills, getting hired, and then kind of learning as he went. Yeah, there's a lot that was said about that in the the hacker's book about he just basically would go to job interviews and they'd say, do you have these skills? He'd be like, yeah, I have all these skills. And then he'd go home and learn them real quick. And when he got on the job, he'd kind of fake his way because uh, he was managing a bunch of jobs at once, you know, to make money. And uh, it was kind of interesting to hear what he was doing. Interestingly, I've modeled my career path after him. So in 1979, Ken was programming some kind of income, income tax software on a mainframe. Exciting stuff. So, yeah, it was a teletype machine, and the thing he was programming on was uh, 3,000 miles away. And he was just kind of searching through the system, like the directories, checking it out, and he saw something called Adventure, and he ran it, and it turned out to be the game Colossal Caves Adventure. So he called Roberta over to show her, and, you know, she kind of was reluctant to play it, and then immediately hooked. And I guess she played it, like, nonstop for weeks. Yeah, they describe that in the book as well. She was just, like, totally into it, like, ignoring the kids and stuff and just (laughs) playing this game for three weeks straight. And apparently, and I've seen this, you know, with my wife as well. She doesn't play a lot of games, but she'll get hooked on a game, like the movies. She played for over, like, 200 hours because she got really into (laughs) it. So I could see how this could happen, that you'd see something and she would just be really latched onto it. So it's kind of cool. And the game Adventure was programmed by a couple of MIT hackers, uh, Will Crowther and Don Woods uh, at MIT. So. so Ken and Roberta searched for other games to play, and they couldn't really find any. They were like, yeah, for a lot of other adventure games, I guess, you know, similar ones. And Scott Adams, Scott and Alexis Adams, actually had the same experience. They were in Florida. Right. For- and they decided to do something about it, and they started Adventure International. Yeah. They programmed for the TRS-80, saved ca- to cassette tape, and by late 79, Scott had five adventure games written for the TRS-80. Right, and I guess Ken borrowed a TRS-80 from work and started playing Scott's adventure games, and they finished these games. They were a lot like adventure, almost exactly like adventure that they'd played on this mainframe. And Roberta was like, you know, instead of these tech... And we should they were all textual-based. There was no graphics or anything at the time. It was like the right, all text adventures, just typing... Right. So Roberta wondered, you know, instead of just having text, what if they showed pictures? That'd be really cool. And so Ken, at the same time, Ken's brother had uh, showed him an Apple II, and Ken was totally hooked on this Apple II because he wanted to write a Fortran compiler for the for the Apple II computer. So uh, Christmas 1979, the gift to each other, uh, Roberta and Ken, was an Apple II computer. It, was, it had a floppy disk, monochrome monitor, and 64K of memory. And, you know, Ken was very into wanting to program Fortran, but at the same time, Roberta was like, you know, they should use this to create an adventure game that has graphics. I'm with Roberta. That was probably better than a Fortran compiler. I don't know. It's, I like Fortran. I don't know. Fortran's pretty sweet. <laughs> <laughs> so, the story goes, they were out at a steak restaurant, and Roberta was describing her game idea. And the idea was it would be in a house 
one of the seven characters in the house would be a killer, and the characters would get killed off, and she started getting more and more excited, and she was really into the game, and this was the game that would become Mystery House. Right. And it was inspired by Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians story and the board game Clue. Yeah, it was the first adventure game to have graphics. And sweet graphics they were. <laughs> well, we, they were... We, right before the podcast, we played a little bit of this game, and... Uh... Yeah, the graphics weren't that great, and I guess one of the reasons for that was that they used a, kind of a tablet device to draw the the pictures. How did they do that, Tom? Yeah, it's the tablet back then, it wasn't like a touch-sensitive tablet like we have now. It was more of a, a series of connecting rods that you would move, and it would detect you know how, from how far the rods had moved um, where on the, on the grid you were. So it was kind of an awkward device to use. It wasn't like you know taking a nice pen and swooping right. it across a tablet. It was it was sort of a strange mechanical device. And the graphics in the game are pretty pretty bad. I mean, it is graphical, and it was a first graphic adventure, but they're really kind of like well, stick figure. If you see them today, if you see the game today, and again we primitive. just we just watched it. Um, it looks primitive. It it looks kind of bad by today's standards. But you have to remember that back then. Any graphics at all in an adventure game was extremely exciting. This was a, a very cool Back thing. Back in the day, mind-blowing innovation. And I can remember playing this game on the Apple II and just thinking that it was incredibly cool because it had these graphics that sort of, you know, primitive though they were, it put you in the scene. It was like almost a first-person experience instead of just reading text. Right. But it still used text for all the commands in the game. So right. So it actually in. combined text with... Um, graphics. So there'd be a picture at the top, and then in an area at the bottom of the screen, there'd be some textual descriptions of what was going on, and then you could type in your commands. Right. And I guess one thing that was interesting about it is that uh, Ken used machine code when most of the games right at the time were written using uh, BASIC on the Apple. So uh, one of the things they talk about in the Hacker's book is that to get all those images stored on the disk was kind of a, a big feat. So he used some uh, weird algorithm to do all that, so it was supposed to be fairly impressive at the time to get all that to fit on a single disc, using the display the way he did. So they published this game under the name uh, uh, Online Systems, which we talked about earlier, and the name Online Systems come from comes from Ken's consulting work. So the reason he chose Online Systems is a lot of, a lot of the work he was doing was taking people's uh, paper forms and turning them into electronic forms so people at work would use you know a teletype or whatever to enter information online nice so that's where the name online came from so uh ken and roberta started driving around now that they had this mystery house game and selling it themselves to different stores because at the time there really weren't many computer stores they just drive around on the west coast you know selling this game (laughs) and they contacted scott adams and started to sell his games on the west coast as well I guess they sold approximately 10,000 copies of this game, which is like way more than they ever expected. Because I guess Ken was really reluctant at first <laughs> that this would ever be successful, and he wanted to do his Fortran compiler. And after this, you know, 10,000 copies, they were like, well, maybe we have a business. So in 1980, based on their unexpected success, they decided, hey, let's start developing games. And they mo- moved to Oakhurst, California, which is closer to Roberta's family. And this is a small town. It's sort of a stopover for tourists on the way to Yosemite National Park. Yeah, so what's what's cool about that is, unlike a lot of companies that move to these large cities, you know, to attract talent and stuff, Oakhurst, California, which I really didn't know how big it was, apparently there was no stoplights. There was one grocery <laughs> store, single-screen movie theater, one video rental store, so it's just really tiny. 
And that's the point that they changed the name from Online Systems to Sierra Online because it's uh, at the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountain range. And the first title that they released was called The Wizard and the Princess. And this was the first high-resolution color graphics adventure. And it sold more than 60,000 copies. This is another game I played back in the Apple II when it first came out. And again, it was amazing. Amazing at the time. I guess they sold it for like 30-some dollars. So 60,000 copies at 30-some dollars. That's, that's pretty good. That's for pretty good For a couple people yeah. working on that. So. And this was a very small family business. They duplicated the floppies by hand, and they put them in Ziploc bags. I talked about this on our previous podcast about the Apple II, about how the games used to come in Ziploc bags. Yeah, because I, I remember the, like, the first... The first Ultima games, uh, Richard Garriott, he did a similar thing. They were all packaged <laughs> in Ziploc bags, and you'd sell them to individual stores. Yeah, and Roberta's mother did the art- artwork for the packages. Yeah. Um, Roberta did the in-game artwork. Yeah, just like she did on the first. And Ken did all the programming. And what, what was pretty funny is, I guess, Ken and Roberta did most of the customer support themselves. And I actually experienced some of this customer support. I can't remember for sure which game it was. It may have been Mystery House. It may have been Wizard and the Princess. But for one of these games, you know, I was having some issue with the game, and I so I called the number that was on the, you know, on the sticker or whatever, and I wound up. I think I was talking to Ken, and um, you know, this was kind of funny to me because I was a little kid at the time, and so I had this very official-looking game you know it may have come in a ziploc bag but it had an official looking sticker with the name of a company on it and so what i had kind of pictured in my mind is that somewhere there was this huge office building full of all these workers and phone bank yeah yeah, like there you know there would be all these people and i never in my wildest dreams thought that when i dialed this number i'd be talking to the developer you know and so it was amazing to me um so yeah they had that kind of thing they eventually hired more people yeah, and, they hired more people, and they did more than just adventure games. That's when you had, like, Apple Cider Spider, which we talked about last time for the Apple II. And they did some arcade ports. Like, they ported the uh, Frogger arcade game to the Apple II, and I think other computers as well. So at the same time that they're doing this work and they're releasing these graphical adventures, now with the first color graphics adventure, there's another company that was born out of N- MIT that was doing pretty well at the same time. That would be Infocom, really the the... Everybody knows Infocom for their text adventures. Well, everybody should know the Zork right. series. They have obviously they had great game design, but the thing that really I think differentiated Infocom from the rest of the pack was their uh, innovative uh, text parser. I mean, you could pretty much type anything in, and it, it could interpret what you were what you were trying to do. Right. The Infocom was, parser was definitely the best of its time. At the time, it seemed like you could type anything in. It seemed like it you could, could type in anything. Right. Yeah. And even if what you typed in wasn't what you were supposed to do, it would usually understand it at least enough to come back with some clever response. So that's a lot different than Mystery House that we just played, right? We were playing Mystery House, and it, no matter what I would type in, it would basically couldn't figure out what I was trying to say. And it would just come back with something like, I don't understand. Yeah. And I mean, it was, well, and the directions were completely arbitrary. Like, go, go forward, go north doesn't work on one screen, but then it'll work in a different screen. Yeah. It seems to be completely arbitrary. Yeah. So I guess that, you know, even though they had these graphics and stuff, Infocom, you know, was, was probably selling better because... Infocom had the better text yeah. parser. Yeah. And and I think that was proven in 1983. I guess eight of the, the hottest-selling games were Infocom's text adventures. And again, Sierra lost sales because they didn't have the depth or intelligence of an Infocom's text parser. Back in the day when uh, storyline and depth 
meant more than the graphics. <laughs> right. Well, there was a time this this is kind of like, you know, Infocom was the rock star of their day or something like yeah. that. They were they were the hot developer. So, one thing that Ken said about that is that um the reason that their parser wasn't as intelligent is cuz they were taking up a lot of memory for the pictures. Do you guys believe that? Yeah, I do yeah. actually. Do you think they could have done a better text parser? If I they think? were only doing a text-based game yeah. and no graphics, sure, they probably could yeah. have done a better text parser. Yeah. They they may not have been able to Infocom might have been better, but I'm I'm sure they had to make a lot of trade-offs to get the graphics right. in. Yeah. So regardless of that, I mean, Infocom that Infocom was superior, you know, in terms of text parsing and really popular, they were still in deep financial trouble. And one of the problems, I guess, was Sierra started to produce games on cartridges, like for the VIC-20 and stuff. And if you read in uh, interviews with Ken, he says that was the dumbest thing they ever did, because they lost <laughs> tons of money producing these cartridges, which is a lot more expensive, I guess, than producing floppies. And it almost took them out of business. And Infocom... You know, even though they're doing really well, they're ultimately sold to Activision, and they never really gained regained their momentum after that. So, and Sierra was kind of in a bad way as well until uh, until one big thing happened. Well, Sierra got approached by IBM, and they told them, "Hey, we're coming out with this new computer called the PC Junior." People today probably don't remember what the PC Junior. I, is. I remember sweet. it. Super it, sweet. Uh, it was <laughs> super sweet. Dude. It was it was not that great. Super unsweet. It never yeah. really caught on, but that was the new thing at the time. And they said to Sierra, this new computer is going to have new, unheard of levels of graphics and sound. It's going to have a 16-bit processor with 256K of memory, which back then was a lot. It's still huge, isn't it? <laughs> That's what I got in mind. And really, what IBM wanted was a new game that could fully demonstrate the capabilities of the new machine. Yeah. So they were willing to fund the development and even feature the products in ads and pay royalties they just had to create a very innovative game that would really show off the capabilities of the new computer. Right. And Roberta, she's the designer, right? She went all out on this now that they had money. She wanted a fully animated world. She wanted characters that could walk anywhere, even around trees. She wanted music to play at all times, have sound effects going simultaneously. So it was in development for about a year, and it used something called the Adventure Game Interpreter. And apparently that interpreter was also donated by IBM. Apparently, they were working on developing their own uh, interpreter in-house, but the developer left, and IBM said, well, why don't you take this thing we've been working on called the Adventure Game Interpreter and use it to create your game? And that's a platform they used to produce all their games up to, like, the mid to late 80s. I find it amusing that a company like IBM just happened to have an Adventure Game Interpreter being developed (laughs) in-house for some reason. Yeah, I didn't think they liked software. (laughs) Uh, Just random. Random things you could find in IBM. So in 1984, that's when King's Quest, Quest for the Crown, was introduced. It was the first 3D animated adventure game. Of course, what we mean by 3D is, is not you know polygonal, shaded 3D like we have now, but just the idea that you could move your character around in three dimensions on the screen. I think the generally accepted term these days is like 2.5D. Yeah, 2.5D is probably what it would be called today. But at the time, that was the closest to 3D that you could oh, probably stunning. find. So it was, again, a real breakthrough. And it became the industry's hottest game. Yeah, you played the game as uh, this guy named Sir Graham. I guess you had to make him like find these different items. And we'll get to that later, all the, the ideas of kind of what the game was about. But, um, but the uh, one thing that's kind of interesting about this game is you still used arrow keys and typed the commands in so it wasn't like a mouse driven interface or anything you're still typing all the commands to make him do it but you've got this kind of three-dimensional world that you're using the arrow keys to move your guy around i remember you could actually if you would pony up the money you could use a joystick to move him to move him but you still had to type 
Right, right. It was, so it was mainly need... it was a keyboard. It was mainly yeah. keyboard, but you could use a joystick right. if you were like if you really wanted to. Yeah. So the PC Junior did not turn out to be the big success that IBM hoped for. In fact, it was more of a flop. But because of this AGI framework, Sierra was able to port the game easily to other platforms. Yeah, so it showed up on a ton of platforms. Uh, and they, and as we said, they developed many, many more games on that on that framework. So from 1984 to 1989, they only had minor changes to that AGI framework. But the games, they kept getting better graphics. Uh, the stories underlying the games, they improved dramatically. And some of the games produced during that uh, that time period were like Black Cauldron, like King's Quest, Space Quest, Leisure Suit Larry, Police Quest, Heroes Quest, Manhunter. Those are some of the games that were built off the AGI framework. And we're going to go into a lot more details on those series later. In um, 1988, Roberta decided it was time to switch how people interacted with an adventure game. Because people were getting frustrated with the inflexibility of text parsing. So even though we had this 3D world, like we mentioned earlier, you can move your character around, but you still had to type. Like if we wanted to open something, you'd have to you know, say open chest or open this or do whatever. And uh, you know, it's three-dimensional. Why can't I just click at things and tell it that's what I want to do with it, you know? Yeah, so the, her goal was to have that kind of interface to get away from typing in text commands. So she def- designed uh, King's Quest Four with that interface in mind, and the Sierra Creative Interpreter SCI, SCI framework was developed. And that was programmed by Jeff Stevenson. And unlike the AGI that was procedural, I guess this was an object-oriented type of language. It's the second generation framework, and it didn't use the you know there's a no typing interface. It was all icon based and mouse driven. So when King's Quest IV is introduced, it uses that SCI framework, and it's a huge success. Because now people that don't like to type, they got frustrated, they can just click on things, and it'll kind of show them what they can do as they go. Um, Some of the frustration with the text-based games, you guys know this, is sometimes you have to figure out the exact right wording to use. You might know exactly what you're supposed to do, but until you figure out how to come up with the right wording that the game designer had in mind, you won't be able to do it. And so I think that's part of why the icon-driven, mouse-driven uh, interface caught on, is that it eliminated some of that problem. Yeah, the ambiguity. So all the other series that we talked about earlier, a lot of those series, I should say, started moving over to this SCI interface as well. And even some of the older games got redone using this SCI type of interface, which is very cool. And the company at this point was very, very successful. And with success came the acquisition of other companies. So right. they bought um, Dynamics, which was the company that made Stellar 7 and Red Baron. Uh, they also bought Bright Star Technologies, Cocktail Vision. And they started to branch into sports games, simulations, strategy games, home productivity, just casual entertainment. They were still doing some adventure games, though. Well, yeah, are doing a lot of adventure games, but do you remember a lot of those other Sierra products? I remember playing a like Hoyle card game yeah, and stuff by yeah, Sierra. Right. So, mm-hmm. and it makes me wonder, like, why do companies do this? You have this market, this this thing that you do so well, producing adventure games, and you're making money. Why do you need to branch out and start acquiring these other companies and trying to move in all these different directions if you're already making money? I just don't understand that because every time I see something like that happen, then two or three years down the road, that company's gone. So why do you think they, they, they wanted to do that? 
I think companies do that for maybe to diversify risk. That they think, well, if we get in all these different categories, then you know, if adventure games stop being the the in thing, we'll still have something to fall back on. I don't know. How often is that successful? Because I always see it work the other way, where you start <laughs> diversifying and you acquire all these companies, and those people don't even want to work for the company that acquired them, so you end up to be a burden. And you have developers working on those products because those people don't want to work on them anymore, <laughs> and eventually you go out of business. I just I don't see the benefit when you're I think for a lot of CEOs or executives owners they might see uh succeeding in business as a game in and of itself you know just, just <laughs> so it's like the whole point of acquiring other companies and growing is just part of the game to a game of life to them so it's kind of like getting those Xbox achievements it's an ego thing yeah <laughs> Xbox achievements so okay. I, I mean this yeah <laughs> So this is kind of where, to me, Sierra kind of started going downhill. Because they're doing all these other things, and it's hard to focus on what you're good at when you're trying to diversify yourself so much. Could be. Well, in 1989, they went public. In 1991, they started an online service called Sierra Network. And this was really before the World Wide Web. It was before, you know, internet-based everything. So the so, days of the bulletin board. Yeah, and it was... If, you're, if you've heard of the Prodigy or CompuServe services, it was kind of like that. But the thing that was different about it was um, it had a completely graphical interface. Right, and I guess the theme was a cross between a kingdom and a theme park, and people would post messages to different lands. So it was kind of a unique take on it, because I used Prodigy and CompuServe, and they were kind of boring. I guess Prodigy was a little better looking than CompuServe. Yeah, I but... used uh, Genie and CompuServe. Ooh, Genie. And Good Delphi. One. Delphi, yeah. Remember Delphi? Dow yeah. Jones. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they had one. Yeah, yeah I remember that too. I had that in CompuServe. So yeah. those were the days when there were all these competing networks that were all, you know, they weren't connected to each other really. They were standalone. So you had to kind of choose where did you want to get your information from, which which boards do you want to be able to post to. It was very different. So they ultimately renamed that uh, that service to the Imagination Network, and it was sold to AT&T in, in 1994, and eventually it was killed by AT&T, I believe. So they were they were trying to do a lot of different things. I know at one point Sierra had their own magazine that they would publish. Do you <laughs> remember right? that? No, I yeah. don't. And also Sierra was one of the big um, proponents of sound cards. I think maybe they even had their own sound card, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they were. I don't know about maybe that. Maybe the AdLib they, they, card. Oh, okay, yeah. They did really push sound cards because they were pushing sound in their games. Right. And music. Yeah, sound and music in the games. So. so what happened, though, is as they were expanding... They were having trouble hiring people and convincing them to come out to Oakhurst. Yeah. Because it was sort of the middle of nowhere. So they moved their headquarters to Bellevue, Washington, where yeah. they could hire more talent more easily. And a lot of people went along with them to Bellevue. I know that uh, that uh, several of the developers on um, Leaf Suit Larry and like Space Quest, they moved as well. So a lot of people left Oakhurst, but there was still a huge amount of people in Oakhurst, California, but they couldn't hire to it because who's going to want to go out to Oakhurst with this little small town, you know, when the, what happens if they don't want to work there anymore, they have to move again, so. Right. So in 1996, Sierra's revenues exceeded $80 million, and the company got sold to CUC International. Now this is where it starts getting kind of screwed up, and when I was doing all the notes for this, it was just very, very confusing. At what at what kind of went on because there's a, a quite a few acquisitions here. As soon as they were sold to CUC International, well, not as soon, but about a year later, Ken Williams left the company, and then CUC merged with uh, HFS in 1989 to launch Sendent Software. Is that it? I think so. And at that point, they acquired Berkeley Systems and Blizzard. Which is amazing. 
So they were one of the, I guess the Ascendant Software was one of the top publishers and distributor of computer games. And then in 1999, there was this huge scandal. So somebody or some group in CUC had prepared fraudulent financial statements. Right. Prior to that acquisition, I guess, right? Yeah. So This was almost like an Enron-style scandal. Right. And I guess one of the guys, and they talk about it more in the book, is like he was in jail for like 10 years, got 10 years or something like that jail time for this so it caused uh, the stock prices to just plunge and it wiped out the like the entire net worth of many of the ex or the sierra employees including ken and roberta williams so it kind of blew their whole nest egg with this whole scandal so cedent sells the software to the french media havas yeah for 985 million they sold off the software division uh as soon as this scandal took place and then Havas, I guess it is, they sacked Yosemite Entertainment, which is what had become of the Oakhurst portion of Sierra. So 125 people lost their jobs. The whole Oakhurst community is, is, suffered due to this because 125 people, that was the second largest employer in Oakhurst. Yeah. So those people are all going to go away because there are not going to be any jobs there you know, for doing uh, software and software development. So it had a huge impact on the community, which is kind of sad. I think it's cool that Sierra decided to to start in Oakhurst to move their yeah. company there because it kind of reminds me of uh, was it Trilobite that was it in Ashland, Oregon? I think they set up yeah, base or somewhere in right. Oregon, a small town in Oregon. I just think that's cool to have a game company in a very small town. Yeah, yeah, you know, it so. can be a nice location. So that's pretty much the history of Sierra and kind of where they came from, um, all the things that they went through, all their their key achievements. So let's talk a bit in. Uh, about the different series that we liked, the different adventure game series. So, King's Quest. Well, King's Quest was the classic fantasy adventure. It's sort of the one that started... I mean, it wasn't their first adventure game, but it's the one that really became popular. Put them on the map. Put them on the map, exactly. So, in part one, you play as Sir Graham, and you are on a quest for three magical treasures that you have to return to the kingdom of Daventry. Yeah, and I know that, like, in the future in like three and four king's quest three and four sir graham is like older now and there's women characters in the games and a lot of that's probably due to roberta williams being the designer of those games so that was kind of cool of something new that you didn't see a lot in games at the time some people think that tomb raider was the first game where you played as a female character (laughs) but it's not true it's It's not not true. true no but these games had great graphics and i can remember i was talking about this earlier uh before the podcast that i'd go to the mall or whatever and you'd see like a radio shack at the time, Radio Shack was pushing the Tandy color computer, and I'd walk in there, and they'd always have King's Quest One set up by the Tandy computer because it had such great, vivid color and graphics in their games. It would like just you'd want to buy that computer to go home and play that game. They have the music going, they'd have the cool graphics, and it's just I could see how IBM thought that this would be something that could help sell oh, yeah, PC sure. Junior. There was also Space Quest. Yeah, Scott Murphy's programmer on that, Mark Crow, the artist, and. Uh, it's kind of interesting to hear about how that game started. They were working at Sierra, and they wanted to do an adventure game. I guess they were doing other stuff at the time. So they talked to uh, Ken about this idea that they had about this comedy-based space adventure. And Ken's like, yeah, I just don't buy the idea. You know, it doesn't sound good to me. So they put together like a four-room demo or something like that. Mm-hmm. Showed it to Ken, and he's like, I love this. You guys got to do this. Uh, so they went on and, and developed these uh, Space Quest series. And... Like we talked about earlier, they're completely based on comedy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they are filled with comedy. And you play as Roger Wilco, and 
in the first one, he's a cowardly janitor, and this they're getting in, invaded by these evil Sarians, and the only reason he escapes is because he's he's asleep at his post. So he, you know, nothing happens to him. The whole uh, place goes crap, and he has to uh, has to you know revenge the evil Sarians. It was really cool, and uh, had really good graphics, and it was it was really funny. I thought the game was good. So, so yeah, Mark, and if I remember right, it, the most interesting thing is that you're, we're talking about these aliens invading, but I don't remember there ever being any like combat. Anything like that. It was all like solving problems, and but it was still it was just amazing. It was so much fun, yeah. and it's just it's it's still amazing they can do that without any sort of combat interface or anything like that at all. Right. And Mark and Scott, Scott kind of became famous as the two guys from Andromeda, and they kind of had these caricatures of them, like the one guy with the big red hair, they had and pig stuff. noses. Yeah, exactly. And they were always <laughs> on the box art. It was yeah. really cool. Um, one thing I found interesting when researching this is that in Space Quest Three. Uh, Roger Wilco saves the the two guys from Andromeda. That's kind of the plot of it, and uh, he the people that have them hostage are the competitors, Scumsoft, which makes me think Scumsoft. One of the biggest competitors that Sierra had, like in the early '90s, late '80s, um, was Lucas Arts. And what is their interpreter called? It's called Scum. Scum. Yeah. So I'm wondering, is that a reference to the competitors that were Lucas Arts? I would think that it is. What do you think, Woody? I, you know, if I had to bet, I'd bet that it wasn't actually because Scum's just so common a word; it could be coincidence. But I'll tell you, if someone in the company were to tell me that it was, I'd believe them because <laughs> I could, I could easily see that. Another game that they came out with a, a whole series actually was Police Quest. And in this one, you play as Sonny Bonds, a police officer, and you're chasing after the Death Angel who's been committing all these crimes. Um, this game was unusual. I can remember playing this one. It was serious. It was know. serious, and it was more reality-based. A right. lot of these adventure games they... were very much a f- in a fantasy world or a science fiction world, and this was developed with you know consulting with real police officers. It was based on real police procedures. I think a I, real I, police I... officer was part of the team, right. Because right? that's yeah. what I remember being hyped yeah. is that they actually had the police officer like on the box cover. I think right. it, yeah. you know his name and stuff. And so supposedly from playing the game, you would even learn some of the real life police procedures, and that was a very unusual thing. And, and it was. It was very cool. And I know that it was probably one of the first games that had a driving interface where you could track, you know, crack down on speeders and drunk drivers and that kind of stuff. That's something I remember, I remember doing that in the game. Now. That was great. There was a funny aspect to the game where I guess one of the things in the real police procedure that they were stressing is when you come back to your squad car, you're supposed to walk around and look at it and inspect it for tampering. And in the game, you had to do this. You had to go and walk around the car. And if you didn't... Um, it would it would be that someone had planted a bomb in your car and it would blow up. Nice. So did you walk around it every time? Yeah. That's the way to go, Tom. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the game Leisure Suit Larry, which we talked about a bit earlier. I gotta say, this is my favorite Sierra series. I don't know why, but it just is. So you well, get I do to, know why. You know, you get to drink, you get to dance, you get to gamble, and you He gets get drunk, to... too. Remember, like, he'd go to the bar and he'd be drunk and he'd be, like, stumbling back? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, designed by Al Lowe, who we talked about earlier, and we sent an email, and he's working on a new game. One thing that I found interesting about the first Lear Suit Larry is that it verified your age when you ran it. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah, Did I it ask you trivia it would, questions? Yeah, it asked you trivia questions, like multiple choice questions, and I would sit there with my friends and we'd just guess until we got in. It, it would try to ask you trivia questions that typically only an older person would know the answer to, right. and that was sort of their safeguard against little kids playing the game. Even though it wasn't that graphic. Yeah, know, it wasn't that graphic. Another thing that, that was in, I think it may have been, 
don't know, was it Lucy Larry 3? Well, there was a hot key that you could press, and it would show like a spreadsheet. Right, so that if you're playing at work and your yeah. boss walked in, yeah. you, could you could suddenly switch. bring up the spreadsheet. It was a great feature. So again, you know, it was had these sexual innuendos and double entendres and all that kind and of stuff the in the game. And that's the thing is, you know, everyone thinks they're so dirty, but it was all innuendo and, and jokes. Or, I didn't think it was and that And there were, there were subtle, or not maybe not so subtle things, like... In the background art, sometimes there'd be like a plant or something that would look suspiciously like different body parts. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, would, it would be you know somewhat subtle. But it the was whole point was uh, of the game was to score, right? Yep. So he was going around trying to score, and he and he did wear a leisure suit the whole time. And see, that's the thing. It's not like this guy was some you know predator or something. Or like the whole point was he's a loser. Yeah, you know, yeah. like a classic loser in a yeah. leisure suit. Leisure suit. It was Larry. a nice leisure suit, though. I liked his leisure suit. Nice leisure. Suit. It was usually yes. white, wasn't it? Yeah, isn't that an oxymoron? Nice leisure suit. I don't but know. yeah, I think it was often white or some bright color. Yeah. So let's talk about playing these games today. All right, you should you should play them today. But how can you do that? Well, there's a, a couple ways. If you to, don't have an Apple II. I don't know. Well, there's a couple ways to do it. Um, one way that I found that I thought was, was, was great, this company, AGD Interactive, they're producing enhanced versions of the classic Sierra games. So they already have King's Quest One and King's Quest Two available. And they've improved the graphics and sound, and they have talking. And these are from the ground up. They wrote them to look just like, well, not just like, to play like the classic games. But they've enhanced the graphics and done all these things. And they're completely free. You can download them. And they do use the mouse interface, which is nice. You know, you don't have to do the keyboard and type as you go. Um, and they use this thing called the AGS, the Adventure Game Studio. And that's the same program as that Indiana Jones game we talked about earlier mm-hmm. is using. These games look fantastic. I've been playing King's Quest One uh, a ton, and it's completely funny. I mean, going through this game, I remember all the old scenes I used to play on King's Quest. I mentioned this earlier. There's a part <laughs> where there's a witch, and you're walking around a Sir Graham, and you walk into this house. And it's like a, uh, it's kind of like a gingerbread house, and she says, uh, "You know, I smell somebody in my house because she's outside. You know, maybe they'll make a good dinner." And there's this pot. And when she walks in, uh, <laughs> she sees you and casts a spell on you, and she's like, "You're too, you're too uh, thin. I can't use you. I, I'm not going to eat you, but you would make a good dessert." So you think she's going to, you know, eat you for dessert, but she puts you out front, and you're like a gingerbread man, you know, like just <laughs> sticks you outside. You're like cookie looking dude. It's totally funny, man. You got to play it. Well, and that also makes me think. For those who don't know or didn't play these games, one of the things that was most interesting about it, the first few Kings Quest and even the later ones. Um, a lot of the story was based on incorporating many different fairy tales, yeah, pieces of fairy exactly. tales. Um, so you'd come to a part and you go, oh, wait, I know this story. And so mm-hmm. you kind of have familiarity and then you had to figure it out. But then, of course, you it wouldn't make you like replay the fairy tale. There'd be like twists, but it'd be characters from the fairy tales. Right. You might run into little, and I, I'm, I'm sure in one of them, I remember you run into like Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah. You know, things like that, or you run into the wolf in a different part, but it's like, you're not following their storyline, but you can meet these characters just, and it was always interesting because you go, oh yeah, I, I know that. Yeah. It's fun stuff. So what's cool, like we say, is this uh, AGD Interactive. You can go to their website, and of course we'll have a link on our show notes, and you can download King's Quest 1, King's Quest 2, and they're working on a couple other games as well. And of course, there's emulators. There's a free SCI, which is the emulator for the Sierra Creative Interpreter-based games, and Sarian, which is the AGI emulator for the earlier games. And what I was surprised uh, to find when I was looking around at these emulators is not only can you run the older games on them, which is kind mm-hmm. of a gray area, 
but there's a large number of fan-made games. That's great. So there's a ton, I mean a ton of AGI and SCI games that people have made that run on these open-source interpreters. So even if you're not playing these classic games, there's a ton of new adventure games you can play. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a blast to go see what people have done. And they've done really, I mean, it's professional stuff. It looks That's really, cool. really good. So, All right. Well, that, that about does it, I guess, for Sierra. Are there any uh, closing comments or memories that you, that you didn't get to express that you want to? A lot, of, a lot of time in my youth was spent playing those great Sierra games. And yeah. it's just been a lot of fun to, to go back and talk about it again. And um, It makes me want to go and play those games again. Yeah, it, it makes me miss those kind of games, I guess, yeah. for me. I think about the fun I had you know, playing with... A lot of them, when I play with my friends, you try to figure out the puzzles. Right. You think about them. You think about them all the time. Like when, like I say, I'd be playing baseball or something, and I'd be thinking, how do I get through that puzzle or something? Right. And I just don't get that a lot today. Not that I don't love the games I play today. I do. But it's just a different feeling. So it, it'd be nice, you know... If there were games like that, so we didn't have to go play these older games. Not that I don't enjoy that, but it'd be cool if they were were modern games too that kind of provided that that feeling. Well, maybe that Indiana Jones game will be like that. Yeah, maybe so. We'll maybe have to try so. It out. All right. Well, that about does it for episode seven of Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. Thanks for listening. Visit our forums at twitchasylum.com. Also, check out iTunes and go ahead and give us some feedback if you would. That'd be great. We'd really appreciate it. As well as Yahoo Podcasts. Y'all come back now. Here. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> Go play some Sierra games, and we'll see you in the forums. See you later. Two weeks. Uh, Ryan Seacrest Seacrest out Resort out Resort Raz Zero Red out Oh no wait a minute Now wait a minute Okay Chris How do you pronounce Your gamer tag It's Raz Zero Red It's Raz Zero Red Raz Zero Red No it's Razored (laughs) Razored Razored Like a blade Yeah You know the You know I got that name No I have no idea How did you get the name It's a good story for you Talking to the mic so it's good. It's a good story for you, Tom. Tell so, me how did you so get your I, name? the name I got um, from like when I was in college. So I was on some forum or something, and it said put your name in. And my roommate, who I really hated a lot, had just bought the ACDC CD uh-huh. called Razor's Edge. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, I'll never remember my my name that I chose for this forum, and it's, it's that stupid thing sitting there with it. But I don't mind ACDC. But the CD was there. I was like. <laughs> Razor Edge, but it wouldn't allow me to put in the last characters because it had a limit. Oh, so, so I just chopped it off. So and you it got came out Razor Razored. Razor Ed. Razor Ed, right. So your handle's really Razor Ed. Exactly. <laughs> it is really Razor Ed. But then, then I changed it later and like changed the O to a zero, and I was like, it's Razor. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right, elite speak. So that's how I became Razored. Wow, that's a great story. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Thanks. You would have never. Now I never would have. I never would have guessed, but now I know. Isn't that a good story for how I got the name? It is. Yeah, it's great. Do you know how I got the name Pristine Steam? I do. 
Well, <laughs> well I'll, I'll tell you anyway. Let me tell you how he got it. <laughs> he signed up for Xbox Live, and it was one of the randomly chosen names for him because he couldn't think of one on his own. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but it gave you a list, so you had to pick it, right? I had to pick it. Yeah. So, like, of the five or six really bad choices, that was the one that made me laugh. So Pristine Steam? Because I thought it sounded really silly and it made me laugh, so I chose it. Ah, okay. Well, in the next episode, we should... My, my name was given to me by the FBI cause when I entered <laughs> the Witness Protection Program. <laughs> well, it says some Dubai, which things... For some reason, I think of pot when I see that. Like, some doobie. <laughs> is that what it's supposed to be saying? No, no. It actually is intentionally completely meaningless. Oh, so what is some Dubai means nothing? Nothing. Wow. Kind of like life. Life means nothing. Me- meaningless. So he gets the meaningless handle achievement for ten points. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> some Dubai. I thought it was always a drug reference. Some Dubai. Some Dubai. Don't cancel the downloads. I'm not. Keep going. By the way, what, what he's doing right now is he's downloading King's Quest. I'm downloading King's Quest because I I I am jonesing. To play again. So in a second here, he's going to install it, and we'll give you the play-by-play on his installation <laughs> and how, how how he enjoys it here. You shouldn't have downloaded them all at once, first of all. I told you just <laughs> download the one. I'm getting well so I can take them home, but I'll, I'll install the King's Quest 1 while number 2 is downloading. Okay, well, now what he's going to install it. <laughs> if he can figure out how to use his laptop. I feel like we're announcers at a golf match. It's like... And now he's approaching the mouse. Ooh, he's clicking. He clicked he, save okay. I think he's going to go for the double click. Yes, he double clicked. <laughs> <laughs> so by the way, Woody was just browsing the forums. He was. I was giving an update on that because I had never seen Woody browse our forums until tonight. So, Oh, he's installing. We see, I see a King's Quest screen. Did it already install? Right. 20 megs. That's a small download. That was the fastest install I've ever seen. <laughs> exactly. It's <laughs> hard. Oh, there it is. It's actually doing the install now. But it's still fast. It's blazingly quick. <laughs> Look at it go. It's almost to 100%. And it's done. All right. Now, when you start it up, I, I would, you hit exit, which is odd, right? But I found that kind of well, odd. Well, it's the checkbox. All right. It's so, yeah. The installer. All right. Launch it. He's launching King's Quest. Now, go to game options because there's some things you want to tweak here. Ooh. Oh, that Can was you the noise. sound a bit? That'd yeah, be great. We could hear that. All right, so uh, we want to put it in 640 by 400 and make it run in a window. I think it looks better than full screen. Do you want full screen? I mean, you can run it full screen. A window's good. All right, so go ahead and save and run. I think is what you want to do now. Sure, why not? It's loading. Okay. Game is designed. Oh, fine. Click so it. It's just doubling. Click it. Click it? Yeah, click it. <laughs> there it goes. This game was created with AGS, an adventure game scripting program. Alright, go ahead. Black screen. Sweet. Ah, the music. <laughs> yeah. It's by Tierra. That's funny. Yeah. It's cool. King's Quest 1, Quest for the Crown. Alright. Begin the game. Is this the intro? I've seen the intro. 
Oh, look, there you are. Dude, look at the improved graphics. That is so that much better. That looks than the good. I remember the original. Okay, look at the splashing water. Wow. Go to the left. Go to the left. That's where you got to go, dude. Yeah, click your mouse now. There he goes. You got to go way to the left. There you go. Click it again. I think you Hold just walked down. into something. Oh, no. no. There you go. Those graphics look good. I know, dude. Now check out a shadow in the water. You see it? Wow. Oh, wow. yeah. Pretty sweet. Pretty sweet. Nice. Keep, keep, don't click on that. <laughs> you get right to the edge is the deal. There you go. Oh, look at that forest. <laughs> Oops. Dude, you went back. Mm -hmm. This is like double the graphic quality that the oh, original was. At least. Go down. That's really good. Yeah, it's cool, huh? So he's playing King's Quest 1 now. Uh-oh, what happened? There's a small dwarf right nearby. Be careful. <laughs> this sly little chap is trouble. Take him out, Woody. Get him, get him. Dude, he's gonna take your stuff! <laughs> Did he steal anything from me? I don't know. How do I check my inventory? Go oh, to the top. The, Go to the what top. is that? Is that a rabbit? What is that? hat, dude. It's his like hat. a crown. That's a pointer, Oh, dude. that's right. It's busy. Yeah, click that. That'll tell you what you got. You're carrying nothing, so I guess he took everything from me. He took everything. Maybe, you, have maybe you had nothing to I start had with. nothing. Go to the right, dude. What are you doing? You gotta go to the right. Do I need to hunt him down? Why not? Oh, I see. You just let him go. You click it once, and he just walks that direction. Yes. It's set up for the old keypad where you could put, have the five in the middle, and then you would stop. Oh. Well, I guess non-laptops still have the right keypad. Right. Did the game lock up, dude? Alright, guys, I gotta go. Give me a block. Alright. Oh, dude, check it out. Oh, it's a cutscene. <laughs> cool. Alright, All Tom. Right. Yeah. So, what do you think of that? It's awesome. I don't remember this being King's Quest 1. Yeah, it is King's Quest 1. I think the graphics were so much better than I would expect. Well, that's the thing. They redid all the graphics. Damn. Oh, dude, you're dead. Totally dead. You just drown. Sweet. No, I think it's awesome. There you go. Some of the music provided tonight was from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You can check them out at music.podshow.com. We'll see you in two weeks.